Oh, we have such talent in our church. Thank you for sharing that with us. That was gorgeous. Happy Staycation Sabbath. All of you who are staying through spring break, it's lovely to see you here. And great to know that uh, Sabbath morning worship is important to you. We're glad you have gathered here this morning. As Pastor Alex was setting the preaching calendar for this year and asked me to fill this Sabbath, I asked him what he would like me to preach on for the congregation today, if he would give me a topic. And this is what he replied. He said, I know, you need to preach on why I love my senior pastor. <laughs> so, when the cat's away, the mice will play. And here is the top five list of things I appreciate about our senior pastor. Number five, his prodigious singing skills. He sings in the office a lot. It has earned him the moniker Mother Superior. <laughs> Number four, he is humble. He takes criticism and insight and feedback like a giant. Number three, he dreams big, and he invites others to do the same. Number two, we see eye to eye, literally. <laughs> and number one, family means no one gets left behind. And I love that about Alex. We have the tiniest staff member in our office every day. She's six months old, and he knows our birthdays, he celebrates our accomplishments, and I know he does the same for you. So it is a privilege to love our senior pastor. It's a privilege to be a part of this congregation that is learning to love and to demonstrate grace and opportunity to one another. I want to share with you a little bit about the town of Webster, Texas. Webster is nestled in what my family affectionately refers to as the armpit of Texas, also known as Houston. It's hot, it's sweaty, and it smells. Webster has a startling population of 11,000 people. And on a corner in Webster, Texas, near Highway 45, sat this man, Victor, for three years. Same corner, every day. Rain, heat, snow, sleet, he was there. He did not move. One day, a woman in town named Ginger, having driven by him every day for three years, decided to stop and ask his name and a bit of his story, and he shared with her there that he had been struggling through life, he had some mental health issues that he was dealing with, and there on that corner three years ago was the last spot he had seen his mother, and he was waiting for her to come back to him. Ginger spent lunch breaks and invited Victor to her home when it was cold, helped him seek out some of the counseling and mental health care that he needed, helped him to get into a home, let the community know who Victor was and why he was on their corner in their town. And the community rallied, 
And he has a home, he has a job in Ginger's Cafe, he has family. Victor says this about Ginger, she came around and she kind of saved me. Isn't that just like grace? Grace, something that sometimes we think we say before a meal, but it is the embracing, the welcoming of the other, the stranger, the one who doesn't quite fit, the one who looks a bit different. Grace, it's the invitation to warmth on a cold day, to heat, to health. Grace is a lifeline to the dying, and grace is a quirky master who demands much of its giver. Often when we speak about grace in the Christian context, we speak about it solely in theory, in idea, as a topic of discussion. But grace can be defined in a couple of ways that are most predominant. First and foremost, grace is defined as simple elegance or refinement of movement. In other words, all the things that we are not when we dance. I've seen Adventist dancing. All right, grace, as we most often define it in the Christian context, is this. The free and unmerited favor of God, which sounds beautiful. And it's a wonderful concept that there is nothing you can do to earn the attention or the favor of God. And we talk about it as an idea, as a theory. We've discussed it. We have Sabbath school lessons over it. We highlight grace often in our conversations. But how often does grace step out of theory in our lives and become practice? What would happen if we duplicated grace from theory and placed it in our practice? You see, Jesus, while he walked on this earth, took grace from an idea, from a theory, from a long-held belief, and put it into practice. He took it from a God and human relationship to a human to human relationship, that God's relationship with me affects my relationship with you. And Jesus demonstrated that to us so clearly. Now, I want to do a little check here this morning. How many of you were asked if you were female this morning coming into church? Hmm. How many of you were asked if you had touched a dead body before you came to church this week? Huh. How many of you were asked if you were indeed Jewish? None of you. And yet, in Jesus' time, there was an evaluation system. As you would go to church, they would check to see if you were okay to enter church, if you were clean enough. And there was an idea around this idea of purity. There was a belief and a structure that began to be built around this. Now, we know that God had given Levitical law, and it dealt with everything from food to death to birth to marriage to what we wore, everything. He gave those to his people, and they took them and said, by this, we can stay pure and clean. 
And if you don't live up to this standard, you cannot come in here. In fact, in the temple, the way that it was used in Jesus' time, you can see different different parts and pieces, kind of concentric circles that got closer and closer, the more valuable or important or valued or elevated in society people were in this time. And on the top left, it says the court of the Gentiles, the outer ring was as close as the Gentiles could get into this holy presence of God. Women came next, and then, women, then men followed that, and the priests, of course, could get into the holy of holies and into the holy place. Right? There was this concentric circles of purity. If you could be inside of it, you had more value in that time. If you were related to the right people, if you had the right heritage, if you were the correct gender, if you were an elevated man who knew the Scriptures and had been raised in a certain way, you could get closer and closer to the presence of God. When Jesus steps on the scene, he flips this whole idea of concentric circles and being able to access God because of who you were on his head. He steps into any scene, much like a street corner here in Walla Walla that is residence to a homeless person, or he steps into a scene where there is one person who feels as though they need to stand on the back row so as not to be seen. He grabs the outcast, the furthest away from the presence of God, the wounded, the deformed, the unseen. He grabs them by the hand and he welcomes them into his circle. God's circle is not tiny. God's circle is ever-expanding because it expands to include me and you. Jesus sees scenes of tragedy again and again and again, people who are excluded from church, who are excluded from community, and he refuses to walk by without taking action. He stops, he sees, he hears, and he acts. He sees the unseen. Those ghosts of society that walk among us, that we are too embarrassed to look in the eye or too ashamed to acknowledge we have not helped. He stops and he does something radical. He acknowledges that this is a person. And he brings the power of heaven into that life by seeing and and then acting on that sight. He lifts the status of that person from outsider, from foreigner, from stranger. He elevates their status into a culturally relevant and important and precious person. Those who went unnoticed by the average person become visible. They become important. They become aware of the fact that they are precious. When he sees the homeless, the broken, the helpless, the hopeless, Jesus intervenes. He reaches his arms open wide, and he welcomes us home.
Now, there are a number of different incidents in the scriptures where Jesus sees people, and sometimes it's a physical sight, and sometimes it's an auditory uh, issue, right? There's different ways that he sees people. It's the acknowledgement that they exist. He sees the 10 lepers, those gang of men who have been cast out of their community. He welcomes them close to himself heals them, and sends them home. He sees the Samaritan woman in John 4, the shamed, the shunned woman who thinks her only value comes from one way of interacting with the world. And he invites her to follow him and be his first evangelist. He sees the demon-possessed, those who are feared and excluded because of their erratic behavior, their out-of-control spells and moments, and he frees them from the chains that bind them. He sees the dead, and he brings them back to life. He hears blind Bartimaeus the bold, blind man who screamed until Jesus heard him. He listened, and he healed Bartimaeus. He sees the 12 disciples, the marginalized men of their day, the men who were not good enough to go to be rabbis and priests. They weren't smart enough in their education, and they probably didn't have enough skill to be skilled in any craft. So they became the blue-collar workers of their day and were looked down on by their culture. And Jesus invites them, like we see here, he invites them to his table. He invites them to come and dine with him. From the outside, straight into God's circle. The widows of the day, the the drag on society, they had to be clothed and fed and housed, but who was going to be responsible for that? He sees those widows, the unwanted, the unneeded, and he gives them what they need, not only to survive, but to thrive. Nicodemus, maybe a visible character in his time, certainly so, but he was the leader who dared to question the system, who dared to ask why Jesus was different. And it got him in trouble. Jesus sees the most wretched, the most hopeless, the most at risk, and he intervenes. There is not a soul that Jesus refuses to acknowledge. When I was a child, my family and I spent some time in Europe. My dad was stationed there, and when we would travel, my brother and sister and I would often get approached by a group of people that looked different than a number of the people around us. They tended to wear very bright colors, and they wore bangles and bells on their clothing, and they had beautiful black hair, and they had olive skin, and they were friendly and lovely people. And they would come up to us, and they would pet us. Because we had bright blonde hair. We were an anomaly. 
We were strange. We were like the starfish with three legs in the pool, right? That you go and find in the sea pools. They wanted to come and touch us and talk to us. One time we went out with a friend of ours uh, visiting a town, and this group of people kind of came, children, different people, men and women, who would come near us to try and touch our hair. And this friend ran at them and started yelling and shoved them away. And I remember being so shocked at this behavior because they'd always been so friendly and kind and nice to us. And we got the lecture about how dangerous this group of thieves was. We were warned to stay away because they would steal from us and in worst case scenario, they might kidnap us. There was blatant fear and there was open hostility towards this group. The Roma, sometimes derogatorily called gypsies, had been our friends. But in that space, they were the outsider and they were not to touch anyone or talk to anyone or be involved in life in that community. I still remember with shame watching them being pushed away. Jesus did not chase away the foreigner. The most fragile, the most at risk, the most susceptible to harm, those were the ones that Jesus embraced. They were invited to follow him. They were invited to eat with him. They were welcomed as his daughters and as his sons. Luke 19.10 probably gives us the most concise mission statement of Jesus. It says that the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. That was Jesus' mission. That was his goal, to find the wretched, the dirty, the stinking, the lost, those who were too curious for their own good, the women, the foreigners, Now, if Christ is willing to see and to hear and to move for those who have no power, who have no hope, shall we, his followers, not do the same thing? Jesus didn't just see those most vulnerable in terms of risk to life and limb as well. It wasn't just the people who were on the outside that Jesus were con- was concerned about, although the majority of the stories we have of Christ are him reaching those who were outside, who were outcasts. But Jesus also sees and reaches the most vulnerable, most vulnerable parts of each one of us. Mark Twain said it well, Everyone is a moon and has a dark side he never shows to anybody. Each of us have things that we are ashamed of, that we feel guilty about, that we don't want anyone else to know. But Jesus sees beyond our pomp, beyond our insecurities, beyond our pain, and he meets us in the very heart of us and he invites us to come and follow him. He brings salve for our pain. He breaks the chains of insecurity. He walks beside us so we are not alone and lonely. He forgives us so we are not racked with guilt. 
And to each broken piece of each broken person, he issues the invitation to come and join him on the journey of his kingdom. In 2004, New York Times published an article about a whale. And they entitled the article, The Loneliest Whale in the World. This was a a whale that had been recorded, his vocalizations had been recorded by a marine biologist for 12 years. And Bill Watkins, who was the marine biologist who was recording this whale, hypothesized that this whale was alone because he sung in a pitch that other whales could not hear. So he had no family, he had no pod, he had no protection of group. He was indeed the loneliest whale in the world because he sang funny. His song could not be heard. There are moments, I'm sure, in each of our lives when the tune that we sing seems to leave us all alone, drifting in a vast ocean. Beloved, Jesus hears your song. He knows your name. There is no note that you will hit that he does not care about. He has written the very story of your life in the palm of his hand. He invites you to come, to live with him, to learn from him, to rest from the hiding of your soul. Brene Brown does research on vulnerability and the possibility of sharing who we are with the world around us. And in her book, Daring Greatly, she talks about vulnerability and shame and how we can share so that we feel connected with one another. And she says this about showing those pieces of ourselves that we try to hide. True belonging only happens when we present our authentic, imperfect selves to the world. Jesus knows our authentic, imperfect selves. He knows them, and he still asks us to come over for dinner. This community here in Walla Walla, this community that extends around the globe, is gathered around Jesus. This is the place where outcasts are welcome through our doors. This is the place where those who are too sad to look us in the eye, those who are so vulnerable are seen. This is the place where you are heard. This is the place where we would like to embrace you because Jesus has shown us how. His arms remain open wide today. O church, shall we do the same? Let's run out to the highways and the byways and look at street corners for those who are waiting for home. Let's scoot down the pew even and talk to someone who may be walking unseen, who may be screaming unheard, 
Let's stand in this town and everywhere we go inviting people to the kingdom of God in his ever-expanding circle. We bring the matchless power of God to those in need when we bring our love, when we bring our support, and when we bring our care. And when we bring even the dark spots of ourselves, those two God's arms are wide open for. We don't have it all together. We need help as we face our own raggedness. But Jesus hears our song. He hears our tune, as out of tune as it may seem. And Scripture tells us that it is God who sings back to us. In Zephaniah 3, verse 17, oh, memorize it, hold on to it, etch it on a pillow. For the Lord your God is living among you. He is a mighty Savior. He will take delight in you with gladness. With his love, he will calm all of your fears. He will rejoice over you with joyful songs. Come, dear ones, loved ones, precious children of the Father. Come to the grip of Christ who will not let you go. Welcome home. <laughs>